The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. We start tonight with a manhunt in Tulsa, a murder suspect considered armed and dangerous. That victim died this morning, and we hear from a witness who says she tried to save his life. The tornado warnings have expired, thankfully, but left behind plenty of flooding in the area. A look at that impact just ahead. That's Stephen Romo, a 33-year-old TV news anchor based in Houston, Texas. To look at Stephen is to see a dapper young man, handsome, clean-cut, as they say, often wearing a jacket and tie or a neatly pressed collared shirt. He's well put together, in consummate control. But, as is so often true, what we see tells us only part of the story. We easily judge others based on appearances or our own fantasies of what someone's life must be like. In Stephen's case, you might think he had a traditional, comfortable, simple childhood. And you would be wrong. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. I grew up in the late 80s in a suburb just to the south of Dallas, and I had an older brother who's three years older than me. My dad was and still is a big rig driver. My mom was a stay-at-home mom at the time. And growing up, I hear a lot of people say they didn't realize that their family wasn't normal until they were older. But 
that wasn't true for me. I realized very early on that my family was not quite typical uh, through watching TV and just visiting neighbors. I, I realized that my home life was something to hide. Uh, it was a secret. It was something that I was ashamed of. One of my first memories is standing on a kitchen drawer that I used to pull out so I could reach the counter and grabbing a jar of peanut butter and looking inside and just seeing it was full of roaches scurrying over each other and dropping it and letting it roll away. And that is, that's one of my first memories. And I knew that wasn't normal. I was disgusted by it and angry at my parents for it, but I knew it wasn't normal. So that was the situation in our home for a long time. But my mom and my dad went bankrupt and the bank foreclosed on our house. So we had to move into the home of my great uncle, my mom's uncle. And it was a duplex. And sort of out of nowhere, my mom decided that we needed to get dogs. It was like a necessity. She mentioned so we would know if anyone was going to break into the home. It started off with two chihuahuas and they had their own family. And it was six chihuahuas at one point. It was, it was really just hard to keep up. So we gave some away and we collected others. We always had just like a, a herd of mostly chihuahuas. It's funny, too, because you think about what one might think of as a guard dog, and you, you, don't, immediate, you don't immediately go to Chihuahua. Yes, I, uh, yeah, it doesn't make a, a ton of sense. They did. I mean, we always knew when anyone was anywhere close to our house because they yapped. And I don't even want to call it a bark. It was just yapping nonstop. And I loved those dogs so much. I feel like my childhood would have been much more empty without them. They dogs just accept you and and love you and get excited when you come home and I didn't necessarily get that from my parents uh, but at the same time they were the source of so much consternation they never went outside they just the carpet was their bathroom eventually we had to rip up the carpet because it was so urine stained and that just made the roaches seem like nothing to have to deal with that. I, the roaches were just a just a slight distraction compared to them. Did your great uncle know what was going on in the other part of the duplex? And did, did he have any response to any of that? Strangely, no. He didn't have much of a response. He, his presence was always a, sort of a fear for my mom. And I didn't understand why for a long time. He had a key to the house, obviously. And sometimes we would come home and my mom would tell my dad that she could smell my great uncle's cologne. And that set her off into, um, I don't want to say hysterics. That, that sounds um, extreme. But she was deeply bothered by it. And, of course, that made sense later on. But at the time, it didn't. It also didn't make sense why he would see the way the house was and not be livid that we were destroying that house. My brother um, started punching holes in the walls when he was about 13 and ripping the doors were cheap plywood or particle wood 
doors and he would tear them down. Eventually we had no doors in the house and there were giant holes in the walls. And my great uncle saw this and never said anything about it. We saw him at family gatherings. There was never any mention of it, which was bizarre to me. And it stood out, even though I couldn't really put together why until later on. Why was your brother, why do you think he was punching holes in the walls? I think he was angry at our home situation too. And my parents just, we just sort of were on our own, handling things in our own way. And my dad is a, is a smaller guy. He's about five, 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 six. And my brother and I, I'm six feet tall and I've been, I've been taller than my dad since I was about 14. It was the same thing for my brother. So he could control us fine when we were smaller than him. But as soon as we got bigger, it was just, um, you know, do whatever you want. You're on your own. So sort of like that for my brother. And he uh, expressed his anger by destroying our house, destroying our walls. Well, it's so interesting because it sounds like your house was sort of being destroyed anyway. So, you know, how could the ante be upped in some way? It's true. One of the things that I always find so interesting in thinking about family secrets is when it seems like a couple develop or conspire to keep something hidden or secret together. Does it begin with one of them, or is it sort of something that grows with both of them? Did it start with your mom or your dad, or was it something that wouldn't have happened if each of them had been with somebody else, but it happened because they were together? I've thought a lot about it, and I really do think that it is, they were just sort of the perfect storm together to make this environment happen. I think if either of them had been with another partner, I don't see how this, it could have happened. My dad He's the eighth of nine children, and his mother died when he was 12 years old. So his home life was very erratic. He was mostly raised by his older siblings. My dad is Hispanic, and some of his older siblings and his father spoke Spanish, and he barely speaks Spanish. They literally spoke different languages. He was on his own a lot as a child. Uh, My mother was raised by her grandmother and her mother after her parents divorced and she never felt loved what i was mentioning about the great uncle i found out later from my mother she sort of tearfully admitted to me when i was 14 admitted to me as if it were her something that she had done wrong she told me that that great uncle had sexually abused her starting when she was nine years old while Uh, My aunt was watching my mom. He would come home on his lunch breaks and she would be pretending to be asleep often. And he would wake her up and take her to a different part of the house and abuse her. A lot of stuff clicked into place because of that, why she was the way she was. Did something precipitate her telling you? At this point, when she told you, you had been living in that great uncle's house for some period of time, yes? Yes, for a a few years at that point. What I think precipitated it, I was complaining a lot more. I had started, I had a younger sister. uh, She's four years younger than me. And I started uh, telling my mom that I was going to call 
Child Protective Services if we didn't move. And I was a smart ass, just to be frank about it. I, I couldn't go along with it anymore. I um, would say things like, you feed the roaches better than you feed your own kids. And I was just a constant critic of my father too. He was gone a lot, but when he was there, name calling was a huge issue in my house. My parents called me names. I called my parents' names. It was just a, a thing that happened. Right before my mom revealed that to me, I decided my dad wasn't going to call me names anymore. The word at the time was faggot that he kept calling me. Excuse the use of the word that I hate, but it was that word I decided it was never going to happen again. So I sort of charged at him and you know, looked down at him because he was so much smaller than me and told him that he was not going to call me that word ever again. And he shoved me and I shoved him back and knocked him down. And he walked away and that was the end of that. My mom, she had been at a grocery store. She got home and my dad told her what happened. And she came into my room crying. And instead of talking about that fight at all, she sort of abruptly told me about the sexual abuse with her uncle. I got the impression at the time she was telling me sort of to say that she had enough going on, that we were living in his house and she was going through enough turmoil that she just wanted me to just stop being so obstructionist and arguing and disagreeing with them. I think that's why she revealed it to me. Did she ever draw any kind of connection from her having been abused as a child to the way that she kept her home as an adult? Oh, no, not at all. So it was really, it was unconscious. I definitely think it was unconscious. She, my parents both would blame us, the kids and and the dogs, saying we didn't help and uh, we took food in our rooms and and all these sort of lame excuses that I never believed. But she, no, it was never conscious. I don't think that that's what she was doing. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stephen goes to school dressed in mismatched clothes, dirty clothes, and sometimes the roaches hitch a ride in his backpack, crawl out of his lunchbox. Other kids notice, of course, but Stephen invents stories around why that's the case. I was just a liar. I thought I was really good at it, uh, but now looking back, it just seems ridiculous, the stuff I would say. But it was anything to disconnect me from the way I was growing up. I watched so much TV as a kid, uninterrupted hours upon hours of TV, any and everything. We didn't have cable, so it was just what I could get on the antenna. But because of that, I invented so many 
stories that were just completely made up about trips to Europe and stuff that would have never happened in a million years with enough detail. I thought that I was completely tricking all these kids to think that I was actually like one of them or just wealthy and I was made to dress poor because my parents wanted to keep me humble. Just, uh, just ridiculous stories that I made up just to try to defend myself. And I was made fun of, of course, because that's what happens when you're a kid. But I really feel like the kids were easier on me than they could have been. I could have had it much worse than I did. You know, it's interesting, the whole idea of an education through TV, you know, and, and through reading as well. And the way in which, I mean, so often uh, on this podcast, I think about my guests' stories and the way that if the story had been playing out during a time when the internet existed, where there was, you know, so much readily available information, you could look something up, you could call it by its name, you could find out what it was, you could connect with other people who might be going through something similar, and there are things that are not so great about that, but there's so many things that are that really pierce people's sense of isolation, whereas when you were growing up, that didn't exist. And so your education was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's such a ordered, gentle, kind place, a place where there would never be a cockroach, a place where there would never be anything out of place or out of order. Did you find all of that was like sort of part of your coming of age? Absolutely. I can't imagine what my childhood would have been like without television. It's how I knew that the way I was living was unacceptable and what made me start as a young child trying to fight against it, trying to force my parents to allow us to move um, was just from the stories that I saw on TV. They made me feel less lonely. I felt more connected to um, the characters on TV, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and even shows that weren't actually geared toward me as I was a super young child um, watching um, the Oprah Winfrey show and seeing people who had gone through trauma and had come out just fine. It, it was not geared toward a nine-year-old boy, but watching it made me realize that if these people can overcome horrible things that happen to them. Uh, it, the same could be true of me. And then getting a library card and reading Diary of Anne Frank and seeing like, this is nothing that I'm going through. This is nothing compared to what some people have survived. Uh, it was invaluable, that connection. I feel like stories really did save me. I think that's why I'm a, a storyteller now. It did create dissonance for me as I was growing up and moving on in my career, that my job was to seek out the truth and to tell people's stories as truly as I could, while I sort of just pretended to be the boy with no history, that I completely tried to cut myself off from my past. There was a dissonance there, and it's only been in the last year or so that I've realized the importance of being honest about where I came from and uh, sort of the power in the telling of a story. So how did you get out? Like, walk me through, you graduate from high school, and did you know that you wanted to become a journalist? What was your path, initially your path away from that home and that environment? Well, eventually I, uh, I kept sort of fighting with my parents, and I uh, 
dropped out of high school and I, I got a fight with my dad. I think it was, I got a job uh, setting up for a church, a nearby church. They met in a YMCA. So I had to go and set up chairs and in a gymnasium and make it into a church. And I got paid, I think it was $50 a weekend when I did that Saturdays and Sundays. And I didn't have a checking account because I was 16 years old. So I would give my parents the checks and they were supposed to give me the cash. But after they had um, $350, they would not give me the money. And so that of course caused a fight. And I just got so fed up that after that fight, I moved in with my great grandmother for a little while. And then I started renting a room and I had been out of high school for about a year uh, went ahead and took some entrance exams and got into community college and stayed there for a couple of years and then transferred to A&M. And it was, I say, it sounds crazy to say it so simply right now because it seemed impossible what I was trying to do to escape. And it was very hard and there was a lot of struggle. And uh, just to sum it up in a few sentences seems uh seems so crazy, but that's uh, what happened. Yeah, it's it's always the in-between, right? I teach writing and occasionally I give my students this exercise where I ask them to write a list. Um, it's a sailing term, but like the tacking points in their life, like where you, when you sail from point A to point B, you don't go in a straight line. It's like, you know, you, the, the boat, you know, sails into the wind or away from the wind. And then after they've done that, I ask them to take two of these tacking points that are side by side and fill in the middle because it's always the middle, right? Like what you're describing is like, yes, you're summing it up, but you did, I mean, ultimately you went from having dropped out of college and being in this really tough position to finding your feet. You know, it's, 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 it's a messy process, but you found your feet. Yeah, I'd like to think so. When I was in college... My mom, this is when my mom died, and I'd say that was definitely another attacking point. It's uh, it's hard. We didn't have a resolution really. She died, sort of. Uh, it, I would, I guess it's it's hard. I mean, it's always it always feels sudden when someone dies. I feel like, but she had asthma and several health problems from just the way she sort of lived her life. I, uh, she was, I think, she was addicted to prescription painkillers. She would argue otherwise. Um, she, they were prescribed to her by a doctor, she would say, so they're not, she wasn't addicted, but basically her organs started shutting down and I drove up from Texas A&M. It's like a three hour drive to the hospital and really wanted to, to talk to her. And she had a, a breathing tube. Uh, she was conscious when I went in there and aware, uh, but she couldn't speak. So, and the doctors had told us that things didn't look good. It was really hard for me to believe that she could actually die. I mean, she was 43, but I tried to push myself to uh, to be more sincere. I have a, the habit of trying to make jokes or, or being sarcastic, but I really tried to have a moment with her and, and speak to her and, and tell her that I wanted her to get better and that no matter what had happened between us, that she was a, a part of us and that she belonged to us. And she couldn't say anything but she grabbed my arm almost like she thought she could sort of compel her whatever she was trying to say 
into me and she just stared at me uh, and cried and then visiting hours were over and sort of got pulled out of there but having to to face that having to sort of realize that there would never be the reconciliation that I always thought would happen with her sort of made me confront it I had to sort of find my own reconciliation so I think that sort of made me more aware of it too now Stephen's working in a TV station in Houston. He's embarked on his successful adult life, and what he does is push his past away. He doesn't lie about it. Lying, making up fantastical stories, is a thing of his past. He simply omits. He doesn't talk about his family history, not with his friends, not with anyone. And then one day, he's in the newsroom on a break when he gets a text from his sister with a link to a news story. So my sister and I talk about the way we grew up a lot. And um, she sent me a story. She knew I was on a, the newscast, so she uh, she sent it. And I assumed we would talk about it later and that I wouldn't read it right then. But as soon as I saw what the headline was about children living in a roach-infested home, I couldn't help it. I mean, there's two minutes left in our commercial break, but I clicked on it and um, started reading it. And um, I didn't just read the article. I violated my own rule of not reading the comments and read the comments and people just expressing their disgust at the situation, but they're also just their hatred for these parents who clearly had to have been going through something for them just themselves and more than anything it was just the sense of of shame that I remember and I thought about it it was uh, there are young girls in this home I was just thinking about those girls the oldest was 13 and I was remembering what it was like to be a 13 year old in a house like that and imagining if there had been a news article about it how mortified I would have been I just something hit me that by omitting where I came from, I was perpetuating that same secret that I'd been carrying since childhood. And also, of course, with secrets is often shame. So I was also just experiencing that same shame. And if, if I could just, to that one family in Idaho that was those girls who were going through this, if I, if I could just make them feel better or less alone, it seemed worth it just to share some of what I went through. So then uh, one thing that struck me is the break is over and you got to go back on the news. Yeah. The cameras are rolling and your co-newscaster is looking at you like, are you okay? And the cameras start rolling and, you know, you're, you're teed up to go and you do, which is something that I, I see again and again and I also really relate to because you have sort of metabolized that trauma for all those years and just packed it away and put it somewhere and it wasn't even particularly conscious for you or visible to you. So it was possible to function at this really high level and just finish up the news. No one looking at you would ever have known what was going on inside of you. Right. Yeah. Sort of uh, the story of my life, right? No one could even tell if there's anything wrong. I think that's the story of so many people whose lives have been haunted by family secrets. We live in a sort of split-screen existence. 
On one side of the screen, you have the secret. And on the other side, we pack that secret away so that we can function at a high level in the world. And when you're on the high-functioning side, it's almost like the secret doesn't exist. Except, of course, it does. It never goes away. It can recede for a period of time, but it never disappears, not completely. Around the same time as Stephen's sister sent the link to that news story, Stephen's producer had sent a request of all the news anchors for childhood photos, old school photos, a fun promotion for that back-to-school time of year so that viewers could see what the anchors looked like as kids. That email that the producer sent had actually been sitting in my inbox for a couple weeks. I just finally decided to sort of take it on. And I have a bunch of photos on my phone. A few years ago, my sister was moving and I she had a big box of photos. And so I uh, just sort of used my phone to take pictures of them all and hadn't looked at them in a really long time. So I made myself go through and I included some of those in the essay. Uh, it's amazing to me how many, I mean, the photos of the worst of it never survived. Like who was going to want to take pictures of roaches in the corner or you know, what the dogs leave behind. So they weren't even as bad as I remembered them being. It's not an ideal childhood, but I had to go through and and choose one. And normally what that entails is me trying to crop out anything that, you know, if my, my jeans were ripped or my shirt is stained, or I mentioned in there, the bugs leave behind this amber colored dust on everything which really, for some reason, just sticks to photos, and it's really hard to to move around it. Uh, I'm trying to crop all that out, but I just sent one in without doing all that treating, and I had always thought that if I did that, that someone would ask, you know, what it was, or someone would inquire about it, but no one, of course, even noticed it, or if they did, they didn't say anything about it. It, it was not at all a big deal. So maybe next time I can save myself the the trouble and just send in a photo. Amber-colored dust. The stuff cockroaches leave behind. Stephen and his siblings referred to this when they were children as bug dust. Sort of like fairy dust. Only not. Really not. So Stephen's looking at these photos and thinking about the news story, and he just doesn't want to pretend any longer. The fakeness of social media, the pretense, he doesn't want to be a part of it. Not at this moment. In an essay he later wrote in the Huffington Post, he says, Honesty keeps us connected. It's pretense that closes us off. He doesn't want to curate himself. He doesn't want to pretend. So there he is, sitting in the middle of a multi-million dollar news set. And something just kind of cracks open. You do something really interesting. You send out a tweet. Yeah. I tweet news all the time, so it doesn't seem like a big deal. I'm sure it sounds like nothing. Just, oh, he tweeted something. But I didn't just tweet news. Here's Stephen's original tweet. He wrote, We cover a lot of horrible things, but this one really hit home. It sounds almost identical to the house my siblings and I were raised in. I wish I could tell these kids, especially the 13-year-old, they're not defined by their parents' mistakes. And he tweeted it. Just like that. So often, my coworkers and um, other people I have to interview, politicians and officials, they just 
assume that my background is not too different from theirs. And I, I don't fault them for that. It's absolutely what they would expect. What was the feeling in the moment? When you did that, did you sit back and think about it for a while and then tweet? Was it impulsive? Was it just something that sort of you just did and then, you know, thought like, uh-oh? I am sort of a compulsive overthinker. I analyze and just ponder stuff. I'm very careful, very self-protective naturally. But for that, I wrote it and sent it very impulsively, which is very unlike me. I'm very careful about what I tweet and post and just put out there. So there was, as soon as I sent it out, it was sort of like, well, there, there it is. It's, it's up there. I purposefully did not look at my phone for a while, which is also very rare for me. I could feel the vibrations of getting alerts and I had, I just couldn't bring myself to see it for a little while. It wasn't until I was in my car about to go home that day that I made myself look at the reaction and people were very kind. People I knew and people I didn't know, extremely kind. So it was pretty impulsive. I would like to say that I was just being brave and didn't have any fear, but I've always been afraid that if people who were in control knew where I actually came from, that maybe it would limit career opportunities. You know, what network's going to want some anchor in a high-profile role to be the roach kid? Like, that's always been a fear. And I would love to tell you that it's not a fear right now, but in the back of my mind, it's, it's still there. But there's a risk in being honest about where I came from. But the, the reward seems so much better just for myself, just to own where I came from, um, but in for other people going through it as well. The, the connection I mentioned is so much more valuable than the pretense because if we can't be humans, and I'm speaking mostly about journalists, if we, we try to tell other people's stories and sort of just float from story to story, from tragedy to tragedy, and don't take a moment to connect to the humanity of it, I feel like it is just not worth anything. After his story comes out, Stephen starts hearing from people, including some who he's interviewed as a journalist. A woman he had interviewed, who had lost her daughter in a hit-and-run crash, sends him a message, letting him know that she could tell, even through the polish and veneer of his TV anchor presence, that he'd experienced trauma. That he was connecting with her as someone who had also been through really hard times. How long has it been since that tweet? I think it was uh, either late July or early August last year. So it's a matter of months, right? Yeah. Not very much time at all. A simple tweet. A moment of reckoning that opens the door to a whole new vista. As you said earlier... Where there are secrets, there's almost inevitably always shame that is what is keeping that secret hidden, you know, unspoken, unsaid, unshared. And, you know, the the shame that you talk about of just, you know, fearing that you'll be seen as damaged or that people couldn't possibly understand or that it will limit your opportunities or have people see you differently when, in fact, almost inevitably, the opposite happens. And, you know, people feel that they can connect, even if their experience is radically different. You're showing yourself in your own humanity 
And that's a gift to everyone who experiences that because then it allows them to be more profoundly human, whatever that means. Yes, it's absolutely been the case. I've, since the essay was posted, I can't even count how many people have contacted me saying they went through something just like I did, or as you mentioned, not really at all like I did, but the feeling, uh, the isolation and the shame reminded them of something that they had gone through. That's why I mentioned that the pretense is not worth it. And the risk of being honest has proved so worth it and so rewarding. And um, sort of since then I've written, I don't really know what it started off as, but it's become as um, sort of a draft as a, as a memoir. And it's made me realize so much of it helps you. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've written several that helps me sort of contextualize the way things are. And I've realized a lot of stuff about my parents and people have asked that question. How can you uh, forgive your parents and how can you continue, you know, my mom's past, obviously, but have a relationship with your father when you live that way. Yeah, it just begins to open the door. And also, as you say, by writing about it, that's its own process of discovery. It's not just about setting down what happened. It's really discovering what happened and how it connects and what belongs to what. And it's made me realize through this whole thing, which would not have happened if I had not been honest enough to tweet that, that my parents, they couldn't take care of themselves. Like, of course they couldn't take care of us. I couldn't expect them to give me something they lacked. So it wasn't even necessarily forgiving them. It's just accepting the way it was. All of these sort of epiphanies I wouldn't have had if I had not just been open about that secret. I'd like to thank today's guest, Stephen Romo. You can find Stephen on Twitter at Stephen Romo. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer, and Julie Douglas and Beth Ann Macaluso are the executive producers. Special thanks to Derek Clements for his help with this episode. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, you can get in touch with us at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer, Facebook at Family Secrets Pod, and Twitter at Fam Secrets Pod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit dannyshapiro.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.